You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. This is Diana Lair, and today we have Kimberly Brooks on the show. This is Kimberly Brooks. She's a painter, and um, we're going to hear all about her journey. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for having me. How did your journey as an artist begin? Well, I was always the doodling, drawing kid. You know, I was always the artistic kid. And when I was in middle school, you know, I would draw a picture for an art contest and win a bicycle or, you know, I was that person. And I was always dissecting things visually in my mind, like even if it was a billboard or a, I was always rearranging things in my head. So, um, but because I was, came from a family of doctors, you know, it was, you can be anything you want as long as you're a doctor first. So when I was 18, I enrolled at UC Berkeley pre-med, but my dorm was next to an art store and I had never tried painting before, but I would always go into the art store and I would linger next to the oil painting section. And I would, I was too intimidated to try it. I felt like you needed the right, like not anybody in my mind could try oil painting. So I would just kind of hang out and I'd, I'd hold a tube and, and I would maybe go to the acrylics because I thought, oh, it maybe involves something smelly and dangerous. Like I knew vaguely it was like a rumor. It wasn't, you know, just didn't know, never had any instruction in it. And one day, one of the uh, students manning the store set, held up um, a tube. I think it was cadmium red medium and said, do you want to see the perfect red? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she opened the tube and said, this is the perfect red. It's not too blue. It's not too orange. It's exactly in the middle. It's like fire truck. Perfect, perfect, perfect red. So I bought that tube and I carried it in my backpack for a couple of years before I had the courage to try it. Like I was, I was dabbling in acrylics, but once I drew that, once I painted with oil, I felt like I knew that this is what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. I, I just was, it was over. It was it. No more medical school. I think in my mind, I was going to always end up doing that. And I'm an eldest child, so there's all these expectations about things that you're supposed to be and do. And I think that, you know, when you come from like a second generation American, I mean, you, you know, my, actually my parents were first generation, but when you come from like that kind of background, thou shalt be a doctor or, yeah. a lawyer or an architect or, you know, something with like a professional. It didn't consist. I never, I, being an artist would be like going to the moon. It didn't seem like it was possible. And the other thing that was so interesting about that time compared to today, I must say, is that all of the, my exposure to art was through the books in our house and the museums that we went to, but it was all, it was just all a bunch of guys and you were all seeing like the 20 or so best pieces of thousands that they made. So I didn't relate. I didn't feel like that could be, I, di I didn't see the works of Joan Mitchell or, 
um, Helen Frankenthaler, like those weren't the coffee table books that I was exposed to. And, I mean, and they were absent from most museums and there was no exposure to contemporary art and women artists. I did know one. I was at Berkeley and it wasn't until my senior year that I actually started painting in earnest and I was okay. getting a degree in literature by then. And that was an interesting compromise because my dad was working on his book, his first book, Art and Physics, and I was helping him edit it. I worshipped my father, the late, great Leonard Schlein, who we both know, we'll get to that. And he was a surgeon and he ended up becoming an artist in his own right because he became an author. But yeah. All through high school and college, I was editing his book, Art and Physics. So being a good writer was highly prized. And it was, you know, I ended up being valedictorian in literature at Berkeley. So it was, you know, it it's still into my 20s. I was still in this walking a tightrope where on one side was a quote unquote professional serious career. And the other side was what I really wanted to be, which was an artist. And then, you know, I started writing speeches for this famous designer named Walter Landor. So I was writing the speeches that he was giving to art and design schools. So to me, word and image actually are super connected. I speak in metaphor. I see things and then I describe them. So I, I paint in pictures. Writing and reading was always a way of painting pictures in my head. So it was all very connected. I almost don't even see the difference. I was just preparing a newsletter to announce my book hitting the book, the stores in a couple of weeks. The book is called The New Oil Painting. And it's, it was actually a small piece of a much larger book that I have in the works. Let's talk about your father a little bit. He was super intellectual and he revered art for what it was saying in some crazy way, but it's so you cannot compare it to art and physics because that is a deep, that's like a pill. Everybody has that book. And if you don't have it, by the way, Art and Physics by Leonard Tulane, I highly recommend getting it. So my book is much more practical and, you know, it's not this heady thing, although my sense of humor is in it and my little illustrations are everywhere, but, but he was explaining science through the language of art. And in my little book, in my own way, I'm explaining art in the language of science. So okay. there is a parallel, although this could no way be described as, you know, monumental as art and physics was, but it's a damn good book. I highly recommend it. And when you get it, please give it a five-star review because I want to get in that recommendation engine so that other painters will find out about it teaching for many years, I was very frustrated about how little people knew about just little things like how to, you know, how to set up your, set the table properly, just all the things that one can do to get a shortcut to getting on the surface faster because time is energy. And the more time you spend wasting doing things that are um, organizing your palette and everything like that, the less time you're actually painting. And in order to become a good painter, you need to earn painting miles. Literally, you need, you need to actually, it's like if, you, if I could have a credit card attached, if only I could have a credit card attached to how many miles I've painted. But the other big thing was about 15 years ago, I was 
working with some really smelly stuff, you know, liquid, you know, all the bad um, products that all the products with fumes, because that's what I was taught to do. And I started to feel really sick. And then one day I was having trouble breathing. So it was really my lungs hurt. And I was like, my God, you know, I've been sitting in this studio for years and years thinking nothing of having an open can of turpentine. And, you know, I tried everything, the citrus solvents, the OMS has the lowest evaporation rate, but it still gets into your body and it's toxic. Yeah. So then I be then began the big negotiation. Okay, I'm going to get the best water miscible oils. But with water miscible oils, you don't get that effect of the way turpentine dries. So like you, can, you can't catch those mid-drip things. Right. Like, you know, it just doesn't have the same effect. And then I also started reading more into the chemistry and the of it. And what they do is they're actually mis mixing it with soap. Yes. And that's how they make it water miscible. And I was like, ew, <laughs> you know, I don't want, I mean, and then this whole drive to put things that go down the drain that also bothered me because I was thinking about the water supply all the time. Right. You know, acrylics is tiny thermoplastic particles, that binder, which dissolves in water when people use acrylics and they wash their brushes, it goes down the drain and that gets into the water supply. It's just terrible for the environment. I mean, nobody talks about that. So the convenience of the ultimate convenience of being able to wash your brushes down the drain instead of using solvent, which which you, you theoretically wouldn't wash down the drain. But at, if you go to any art school where oil painters are learning to paint, they've got their glunk, 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 glunk with a can of turp and they're putting it down the drain because they don't know, you know, like it's nobody teaches that. They'll teach all sorts of other things, but nobody teaches how to clean brushes. I did a lot of research. And so what I learned using both, you know, the techniques of Rembrandt and Velasquez that you don't need solvent at all. Solvent actually weakens the paint film and that what they really just used was oil and chalk and a little bit of egg. And that chalk, when you mix calcium carbonate or marble dust, and there's all different kinds of chalk, and this is like a huge subject. I think I've got a chapter on it. If you use chalk with the oil, it dissolves and it, it, becomes clear. You can take like two tablespoons of chalk and like one tablespoon of oil. And I take a little disposable cup because you don't want to get this down the drain either because it'll clog up your drain because it's what they use to make cement, by the way. And you, you spin it around with a chopstick and then you use that as your medium and it will create the effect of solvent and it'll dry faster. And it works. And so then I spent six months, I got canvas pads and I didn't believe that it wouldn't lighten the color. At first, I didn't believe that taking this white powder that I got initially from Kremer and you can get, you can get Frederick's at the, at any art store, any hardware store, it doesn't need to be precious or special. And you mix it with any refined linseed oil and you're going to get a putty that not as thick, quite as toothpaste, but and then, and then I got really into it. Then I got super artisanal about it because there's all these different kinds of oils. There's aged refined linseed oil. There's pale boiled oil. There's 
bodied oil and all the different kinds of oils and different oils have different viscosities and they have different drying times. And so everybody has in painting the need for speed, right? They want it to dry faster. Chalk does that instantly will make it dry faster. This book is all about information for painters. Yes. And, and, and then I get deep, deep, deep into pigments, just sort of the difference between organic, inorganic, natural and synthetic pigments and how a lot of the pigments names that we have today, like rose matter, for example, which comes from the matter root, but they call it rose matter, but they now, they now uh, recreated it in a lab and made it a synthetic organic pigment instead of a natural organic pigment because the, the natural one is harder to make more expensive and fugitive, meaning it fades. And so, but it's the difference between like when you eat a banana, there's like hundreds, maybe thousands of molecules that make the flavor of banana, right? Yeah. But have you ever had like gum that's flavored banana, like banana flavoring? It's like that yeah. one note. It's like the most banana-iest part of the banana. And then they put it in the gum and it's like, eh, it's not a banana, but you know, I'll eat it and it'll taste like a banana. That's what modern organic synthetic pigments are. They're one note of color. Whereas the natural and mineral pigments are thousands of shades of a color. Like when you get burnt sand, so the earth colors are already like that. That's like baked in. You don't, you don't synthesize earth colors, but you lose the range when you go towards modern synthetic and the first modern synthetic pigment, which was created was Prussian blue. And it was like a BFD because lapis lazuli or azurite, which are two different uh, rocks, but in this, in the bronze age, they started mining these, you know, semi-precious stones and crushing them. And then going through this whole elaborate process to get this blue. And it was so valuable. It was like reserved for the robes of Mary only. And people were mortgaging their palaces in, in, in Italy just to get a commission, a painting to be done using this blue because blue is not found in nature in plants so easily. You can't like crush it and make it. That's like, a, that was never, imagine, imagine people I wish I almost wish could go back to that time where you walked into a room for the first time in whatever it was, 1500s, and, and see a color that you've never seen before on a painting. That must have been, that must have been like the difference. That must be like the invention of TV. Every single aspect of just the materials alone of oil painting is so rich and interesting. And it, when you know these basics that they don't teach in school, that nobody knows about, like the idea that you don't need to use solvents to paint with oil to me is a huge revolutionary idea. And it would make, it would allow more people to do it and less pigments to go down the water supply because you're less inclined to put oil down the drain. And I actually didn't put this in the book, but I have a pro tip. I was always using so many paper towels. One of the key ways to reduce any kind of waste going into the environment and the reduce the need to wash your brushes a lot is to have more brushes. And it sounds 
simplistic, but if you basically say, well, I'm going to use a different brush for my warm colors and my cool colors and my dark colors and my light colors. So if you use more brushes, that's good. Then you're not dipping it into turpentine. And let's hope like the book makes people stop doing that. What I've been doing is I've started creating a series of, I, I take coarse watercolor paper, cold pressed watercolor paper, which has kind of a tooth to it. Yeah. And instead of paper towel, to the left of my palette, I just wipe my brush on that. And I have many of them going at once because you know, it's oil. And then whenever one gets too wet, I bring in another one. So can I, well, I, I won't show them to you because this is a podcast, but they're gorgeous. Yeah, 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 I bet. And then I cut them up and I use them as like my stationary. Right. <laughs> and I just like right on the back of it. And they're, they're insanely gorgeous. Like they look like Cecily Brown. Oh, that's fantastic. You know? I'm just going for zero waste. One of the reasons why you need kind of a metal Oscar the Grouch pail if you're an oil painter is because the, the whole process and the chemical reaction of paint drying, which, you know, paint takes over a hundred years to dry. Like it, it truly dries in a hundred years. It might be dry to the touch in a couple of days, but um, it's an exothermic reaction because these long spindly chains of carbon and hydrogen atoms, they like they, they form like braids. And when the, in order to do that, they take an oxygen from the air and they release heat. And that's why if you have rags with linseed oil, you need to keep them in a metal pail. Little stuff like that. And the book is called? The New Oil Painting. And when is that? Where It comes out June 15th. It's on Amazon. And okay. uh, it, it well, you know what? I like to support local and smaller bookstores you can get it at i think it's called bookshop.org to get support your local you can go to the bookstore so it's it's uh, published by chronicle books the subtitle is um your essential guide to materials and safe practices i made about 18 paintings for the cover exploration so i'm having an exhibition opening on june 19th in los angeles but it'll also be on um, artsy. And I'm having a virtual book party if anybody wants to come on June 16th at firstpersonartist.com at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if anybody wants to come to my book party slash virtual exhibition, I will be there sitting by the fire, hopefully, you know, drinking a Cosmo or something. <laughs> <laughs> so that's wonderful. That's really exciting. Let's talk about your actual paintings. When you started exhibiting and what inspires you? It's so, it's, it's such a good question because I used to really lead with my head, you know, but then when, you know, like I was very cerebral about it, I'd approach, I want to do a series of, my first body of work was a hundred nudes. So I figured if I can master that, if I could capture skin and the way light reflects on it and form, like, that's the hardest thing it, th that to me was like medical school. Like how to, you know, it's, you know how in med school you got to take OCHEM, physics, bio. Oh no, no, that's just to get in. And then when you go there, you have to take all this science. Like you have to get such a deep muscular innate knowledge before you even get to touch a body. So for me, I started with, that was my medical school. And what I found is like when you do that and you paint, you paint something with such devotion, you know, I was so committed to the subject 
that I found that it, within that body of work, <clears throat> there were diving board paintings that kind of made me realize that there was a whole other body of work in one painting. By the way, one of those paintings was called Mom's Friends because when I painted it, you know, I was giving titles and it looked like my one of my mom's friends or not a literal person. It just looked like the idea of it, like a grown-up, right. you know. Right. And at the time my daughter was I think she must have been in three or four and she would follow me around the house and she always wore these little Disney, these little Disney princess shoes. So when she, I think she would try to be like mommy and just clunk, clunk, clunk around the house. So cute. And so I was seeing the way she was looking at me and, and I was thinking about the way I was looking at this portrait of the, you know, that I was making and I wanted to explore that subject more just sort of what motherhood and womanhood looks like from the eyes of a child so then that just led me onto this huge deep um, investigation of that era of my life that I grew up in in Marin County in the 70s and you know my dad we had a stained glass geodesic dome in our backyard with a hot tub in the middle and peacock feathers. I mean, it was like that, that movie, the serial, everybody was getting divorced. Every, all the women were finding themselves and, and all the women were gorgeous and skinny and fashionable. And, you know, it was like a, it was, it was a super pungent era. And I, I wonder today, I don't know if it's globalization or what, but we don't have eras like that anymore to me. Like, I think fashion kind of stopped in the nineties. It just sort of, we've been swiveling in and out of borrowing from the seventies and the sixties and the, you know, like, and then the, and then, you know, the eighties with the shoulder pads and the things like, so fashion became sort of a language within this project as well. So I went to those used clothing stores. I looked for seventies clothing and recreated scenes from my memory using friends of mine. And I would say, will you wear this? And, and my first big exhibition was mom's friends. Being an artist now is so different today, but for people starting out, I would say that I highly recommend flinging JPEGs of your work. At the time I had to do 35 millimeter slides, but you know, to um, juried exhibitions. You know, and so one of the paintings, that painting Mom's Friend, which was the painting that led to the whole show, was cure, was selected by a curator from MoMA into a juried exhibition. And that was like, oh, okay. And it was great. It was very validating, you know. Sure. Like it just sort of was like, okay, so I, I'm sort of getting this. So, so the art world is a chess game, kind of, and everybody is striving to be seen in the constellation of the artists, like to exist as a star to twinkle. Everybody wants to twinkle in that sky. And so how do you get to twinkle, you know? And I started, so I started like lifting my head out of my studio and nobody had websites at the time. I can't even tell you, this was the stone age. You know, this was like prehistoric time, but yeah, I just started to get, get a consciousness of, the life cycle of creativity had to also involve putting your work out there. It couldn't just be that you created great work. Is that what sort of led you to, to do the Huffington Post? Oh, goodness. No. So, okay. 
there was like four or five steps in between. At the beginning of this um, discussion, we talked about how few works of art one would see as a core, as a matter of course, you know, I saw way more ads in a magazine than I did artwork in terms of variation. And I think that you need to see a lot of art to be a better artist. I think that's like a huge part of people's development. And I teach a workshop. I teach a master class called build a body of work because a lot of students stay students forever. And this is like a whole other subject, but I teach painting and I teach oil painting, you know, and I, I can tell so clearly when people haven't seen a lot of art. And I was lucky because I was editing art and physics and like, you know, and I was relating art through the lens of science. And I was going to get the rights to Manet's Le Déjeuner Célèbre and the Mona Lisa for the book. Like I had to look at a lot of art and never mind the fact that you were looking at Cezanne's apples or Picasso's cubism period and how that was related to Einstein's theory of relativity. Like never mind the amazingness of what the book was about. I had to look at a lot of art. It was like a huge part of it. So um, I'm wildly digressing, but my point is, is at the beginning of the conversation, we started off with how little we would see art as as artists. And then when blogging started to become a thing, it felt like unlimited exhibition space, an unlimited way for me to explore different people making art in the world. And I was starving, starving, positively starving to like see what else was out there. So I started a weekly column called First Person Artist. And now it's turned into another an interview platform and I, I interview people live, but I started writing, you know, interviewing people from all over the world. And then I would ask them the same four questions and then, you know, there'd be back and forth and I would just interview them and write a paragraph opening. And then one day I got a call from Ariana Huffington, darling, I love your blog. You know, why don't you do the, put it on the Huffington Post, which I did. And then but they didn't have an art section. So eventually she, you know, I was the featured culture writer all the time because that was the only one writing about art. But I was like picking up artists who were local or just things that I, you know, barely anybody had websites. I mean, it was, it was just me like in a mine shaft with a flashlight. You know, right. <laughs> you know I was just like, oh my God, look at Lesko's cave drawings, but different, you know? <laughs> So eventually she said, I, I said, I stopped posting there. Cause I didn't, there was like, I was always in the style section or the, I said, I'm not going to post there. You don't have an art section. She's like, why don't you do it? And I was like, are you serious? I said, will you hire somebody for me? Like that will do the nitty gritty because I'm good at being bossy and have a lot of artist friends and I'm interested in art, but I don't want to be like, I mean, I'm a painter. I can't do the whole thing. She, of course, darling. So it ended up becoming the most trafficked section of the site. It was at within a couple of years, it was like 10 million page views a month. It was crazy. Wow. And I had it like, I had like people all over the world and it got, it started to eat me like a big blue whale. Like it just sort of, it started to eat me alive. And, and then when it, the company got sold to, I think it was AOL and they wanted to, 
change, you know, then suddenly I became like a mother lion, like, don't you mess with my baby, you know? So then it, then I, then it became this other mental trip of protection, what I built. Cause I, I basically said what I was doing for so many artists, which was giving them oxygen. I could give that megaphone to all these other people. So I started, I would, everywhere I went, oh, you seem smart. You want to write for the happiness? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so I built this network of writers. Now they since let go of the blogging platform. So that just doesn't exist. What I built, what it was like when I was there, if you go there now, it doesn't look anything like it was so, and nobody told me what to do. So I could do anything. I can't even believe what I got away. I always felt like somebody was going to say, okay, this has got to stop, but nobody did. That's amazing. <laughs> it was fun. Can we talk for a second though about the elephant in the room about how we met a little bit, not yeah. how we met, but like, so my father died in 2009 of brain cancer. And before he died, maybe about a couple months before he died, no, maybe within the six months, he, he built this beautiful house in, in uh, strawberry. And he said, there's this artist that I love and I've been looking at her work and I want to get, uh, there's two pieces that I want to get. And she's lives in Hawaii. And we were like, great, you know? And so he, and I remember Ina, his wife and him were talking about these works and then they went to Hawaii and they, and they got the art and it was you. We found that out after we met. How That's wonderful right. is that? I, I said to you that, I knew that you were from Hawaii and I said to you that my father loved Hawaii and every time we were there together, he would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why don't we live here again? He would yeah. always say that. I remembered that he told me that you won the new American paintings competition. When he told me that you won new American paintings, I looked to see the, the paintings that you did and I realized that's the same Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And that, that's a big deal. What year was that, that you, um, oh gosh, I, you know, that was when I was, that was part of my journey and realizing that in order to twinkle, you need to throw your stuff out there, you know? So I actually won it. I won it. I was in it twice, you know, and now he's my gallery. He's wow. a gallery and he, um, and it's a real honor to be represented by them, you know? What is the, the what publisher is Zavitas Marcus. So my show, I have a show coming up and it opens June 19th in Los Angeles and it'll also be virtual. And that's the party June 16th. If you want to go to the party at firstpersonartist.com, that's a, it's basically a zoom room. Um, it's going to be up on artsy for a month. So it, it'll be, you know, it's interesting. I suppose this is an entirely new conversation that the, how the art world has changed. Like for the first time I had to put the time zone of the art opening and the virtual party on a press release, you know, because wow. used to be, it would say Los Angeles and you just assume, let's go back to the amazingness. Yeah. It the is. fact that you had this light bulb go off and then you had dinner with him. Yeah. Right I, before I, he died. I did. I did. I, yeah. I, in fact, we went to see Ram Dass speak. <gasps> 
He and his wife you were buried go- the lead. I can't believe you're just telling me this now. He and his wife were going. I, I don't remember how it came about that they told me they were going to see Ram Dass speak. He lived in Haiku and they invited me to join them there. So I went and we all, the three of us in, in the, in the crowd, it was a very small, uh, it was a small venue, but there Ram Dass was speaking and it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, talk. And then afterwards we, they were going to mama's fish house and they asked me to come and join them. And so I did. Every time, as as so many people know, I'm sure when somebody dies, especially somebody who, whenever you talk about them and you honor them, you know, whenever you kind of bring them like they become yeah. alive again. Yes. And, you know, it's been 12 years since he passed. And so it was just an honor to have, you know, be able to talk with you about him and, and, um, do it in a recorded fashion. Even I think it's just fantastic. Like it really just makes, it fills my heart. It, it fills my heart too. You're listening to Yale radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.